are listening to Stories from Palestine podcast, a podcast recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands and I am married to a Palestinian. We live in Beit Safafa between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and we run Singer Cafe and Al Chisar Bar in Beit Sahur. Before moving to Palestine in 2013, I worked as a teacher and tour guide in the Netherlands. I have a degree in history and in tour guiding and many years of tour guiding experience. Due to the COVID pandemic, tourism in Palestine came to a complete halt and that's why I started Stories from Palestine podcast in August 2020. This is the second year of the podcast with every week on Monday a new episode about the history and heritage of Palestine as well as the reality of life today. I hope you will enjoy today's episode. Last week, I heard somewhere that February is Black History Month. So I looked it up and I read that it is an annual celebration of achievements by the African Americans and a time for recognizing their central role in the U.S. history. On my long list of topics for podcast episodes, I had a planned episode about the Afro-Palestinian community in Jerusalem. I just hadn't scheduled the interview yet. But knowing that February is Black History Month, I immediately reached out to a friend of the Afro-Palestinian community to see if we could organize an interview on short notice. This friend's name is Isam Bayan and he runs the Basim's Gallery Bookshop Café in the Via Dolorosa. And he suggested that I speak to Mohamed Kaus, a third-generation Afro-Palestinian with good English. We also tried to get a female voice on the podcast, but it seems that the active women in the community are very busy and so they could not make an appointment at short notice. So we have to dedicate an episode to women in Palestine another time soon. Isam was so friendly to host us for the interview in his cafe. And I highly recommend that if you visit Jerusalem, you go check out his place. It's a small, cozy cafe with traditional Palestinian designs, books and good coffee. And a wonderful, friendly owner. The day of the interview, it was raining a lot. And I was coming down through Damascus Gate into El Wad Street. And as a matter of habit, I looked to the right to the juice bar where I used to meet with Ali Jeddah. He is one of the icons of the Afro-Palestine community. I hadn't seen him in two years. I heard he spent most of his time in Akka with his family there. And to my big surprise, I saw him. He was sitting right there as I was on my way to the interview with a third generation Afro-Palestinian to speak about their community. So I walked up to Ali and it was only when I took down my mask that he recognized me from the many tour groups that I used to take to him in the past for guided tours around the city. We chatted for a while and then I realized that this was a fantastic opportunity to get his voice in the podcast episode. So I asked his permission and I did a completely unprepared short interview with him. It was so unprepared and spontaneous that I didn't even ask him to elaborate on his prison time. So let me clarify that for those of you who have never heard of Ali Jeddah. In 1968, 
After Israel occupied the West Bank, Gaza, Golan Heights, Sinai and East Jerusalem, Ali was a young man, 17 years old, part of a resistance movement called the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Him and his cousin Mahmoud took part in operations placing hand grenades in West Jerusalem that injured a number of Israelis. They spent 17 years in prison and were released during a prisoner exchange. After his release, Ali worked as a journalist and as an alternative tour guide, taking groups around the old city to show them the reality of life in occupied Jerusalem. And that is how I met Ali during my work with groups, bringing them to Jerusalem when he was our tour guide. I'm so lucky this morning because I'm just about to go and have an interview uh-huh. about the Afro-Palestinian community in Jerusalem. Uh-huh. When on my way to Mohammed Kaus, whom uh-huh. I'm going to meet, I bump into an old friend, Ali Jeddah. Uh-huh. And uh, Ali used to always take us on tours around the city of Jerusalem. And I always, until today, when I teach my students about tour guiding, I give you as an example. And I tell them, Ali used to tell us one or two sentences only. But in the end of the tour, you'd remember everything he said. There was no bullshit, no details that we didn't need to know. And you would always give us the real life of Jerusalem. And Ali, recently you've been more and more in Atta, but you're here on a, a week, you said, just to visit family and friends. Can you just... Give us a little bit an idea of how is the difference for you to be in Akka and to be in Jerusalem. Uh, first of all, my name is Ali Mohammed Jeddah. I am an Afro-Palestinian, third generation. My father is from Chad. My mother is a second generation. The father from Nigeria, my grandfather. My grandmother is a Palestinian Christian. So in some way, I'm cocktail. <laughs> yeah. Now... I am in the north, in Akko. I'm staying with my wife, my children. I have three daughters, two sons. I was obliged to go to Akko because uh, I was in need of medical treatment. Recently, I got uh, bloodshed in the summer. So I go to Haifa, Rambam Hospital, for medical treatment. Once they give me time, to relax, I go to my wife and children and stay with them. Now, let me say it in simple words. What's the difference between the old city of Jerusalem and Akko? With the two cities part of Palestine. But honestly, I usually say the best girlfriend I met in my life is the old city of Jerusalem. I can't find myself without being in the old city. You see, sometimes I go, I walk alone, and I go in a dialogue with the stones. At the same time, I feel the old city is crying and saying to the whole world, please, save me. I am suffering. I can't stand it anymore, and that because of the occupation, the various measures carried by the occupation 
against Jerusalem, the old city, and the policy creeping the settlers little by little in the old city. And when I am talking about settlers, I'm talking about the most disgusting, the most horrible among the Israelis. But in spite of this picture that I'm putting in front of you, I'm optimist concerning the future. I can see in the new generation the real future of the old city of Jerusalem. And this generation is the generation which will build the ground under the feet of the occupiers. Ali, can I ask you what's your age? Just to get a little bit of a perspective, or at least the year you were born in. Yeah, I was born in 1950. In the old city? You, did you grow yeah, up yeah, here? Yeah, at the African Quarter. On the 13th of the recent months was my birthday. Oh! I celebrated that in Akko. Oh, yeah. With the family over there. That's beautiful. Yeah. What was it like to grow up in the African Quarter? Or can you describe it for people who have never been there? Well, concerning the African Quarter, I say we are really privileged among Palestinians. We have a lot of respect. We are well accepted by the Palestinians. And that has to do with our national role. And it's well known that the African Quarter used to be always among the avant-garde in the national struggle against the Israeli occupation. Wasn't the African Quarter a quarter that was used before in Ottoman time as a prison? As a prison. Yeah. You see, I say all the time, I was in jail for 17 years from 1968. I was released in a big exchange of prisoners in 1985. You see, now, the new generation that we have now, I'm talking about the fourth generation, girls and boys, I'm really very, very delighted. I'm very upset in Arabic, you say, because they are very strong, very strong. What would you say that growing up in Jerusalem, in the Afro-Palestinian community, made, it, made your life maybe different from people who are not with a black skin color. Did it make a difference or...? I tell you honestly, what's good about the Palestinians that we have no problem concerning our skin. Today, if you go to the African Quarter, you will see brothers married to Palestinian girls and you will see sisters from the Quarter married to Palestinian. So we have no problem now. And this, as I told you, it has to do with our role yeah. on the level of the national struggle. When you go to the Afro-Palestinian quarter today, I went there a few weeks ago because we went, I entered the Al-Aqsa compound. I had a special uh -huh. tansik with the Aukaf and we uh -huh. did a tour. But we sat there for a while waiting for, the, for them to pick us up. And there is all the time... Israeli police presence, yeah. when you want to enter into the quarter, you always have to pass through this police presence. Yeah, yeah. Look, close to the African quarter, it's regarded by the Israelis as a hot spot because 
whenever there are troubles, clashes inside the Aqsa Mosque, the first position which will be boiling is the African Quarter. So for that, all the time you have checkpoints. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you still go there now? Like when you are, when you come from Africa, do you have your house still there? Yeah, yeah, oh. I have a house. My wife, my children over there. Okay. And I have a house here at the African Quarter. Yeah. Yeah, I have a daughter who is staying here. Yeah. Did all your children manage to study after school? Go to yeah, university? yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of them is studying at Qutsi University, criminology, and I had one graduated in uh, ACO as Optica. Yeah, yeah. for glasses, yeah. yeah. And how is Mahmoud? Is he still alive? Yeah, 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 yeah. he's okay, Mahmoud, yeah, yeah, he's okay. No, he's still uh, taking tours also, most of the time. Students from various schools, he's taking them around, he's doing the good work. Yeah. yeah, even though last two years everything was so slow with the corona, yeah. it's coming back now. So how big do you think the Afro-Palestine community is at the moment? At the moment we are talking about 30 families, but we have some of the brothers and sisters who are living outside the African quarter. No more space. Yeah. yeah. I have one question, is about when you speak about a community, it means that you distinguish yourself somehow from others in the society. Are there particular things that are so special and different in the Afro-Palestinian community from other Palestinians, or is it just the name? I think it's the name. If you are talking about my generation and the fourth generation, it's just the name. While... Uh, <laughs> We are uh, totally Palestinians, and even I say we are more Catholic than the Pope. We are more <laughs> Palestinians than Palestinians. Have you ever been to the African continent? Did you ever have a chance to travel? No, no, no. No? Never. And I say usually if I will be in Africa, I will be as a stupid tourist. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not blend in completely, yeah. But also... I was... Uh, in 1992, in Switzerland, I was making a tour in Europe, lecturing them. So, I was in Geneva. The friends over there said to me on the next day, Ali, we've had a session this evening, and we said Ali has a lot of troubles with the Israelis, so we suggest, I said, yes that you stay here, you have your apartment, don't worry about the money, everything is out of you. I said to them, you see all your Europe this? I said, yeah. I said to them, I am not ready to exchange with one of the corners of the old city, Jerusalem. Yeah. Thank you, Ali, for taking a little bit of time. You are welcome. <laughs> You are welcome in any time. I'm sitting here in a cafe in the old city of Jerusalem, and I'm here to talk to Mohammed about the Afro-Palestinian community, because this month is Black History Month, February. And I said, I have had this on my list for podcast recording 
since a long time, and this is the great month to do that. And I'm very happy that you have a little bit of time because you're a busy man and you have lots of things to do. The Afro-Palestinian community has some really interesting people that we can discuss and talk about. And it's really nice to have somebody from a younger generation. Maybe before we start talking about the community, can you introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do in life? Uh, my name is Mohammed Qos. I am 22 years old and I live in the, I've lived in the community all my life. Uh, I work right now in a hotel in West Jerusalem and yeah. And how did you get to work in the hotel? Like what was your, uh, what's your background in studies and uh, experience? Well, I studied for two and a half years in Switzerland for in hotel management and in business management. I thought that the hospitality industry was a never dying industry, but little did I know that once I graduated, COVID-19 hit. Yeah. So yes, I began doing internships here in, in Jerusalem while I had other dreams of going outside, but because of the entire situation, I couldn't go leave the country. So I stayed here and started working with the Israeli uh, hotels, let's say, or, or the hotels in West Jerusalem. Yeah. Just for the plain reason that the hotels in East Jerusalem were not even open for work. Yeah, imagine. Do you see a difference now that the airport opened again? No, no, not at all. There, there is uh, there is a difference, yes. Now there is no, no more, uh, let's say, tourism, how it was like before the entire COVID situation. Now we have only, let's say, interior um, tourism. So we have only the Israelis, heavy Israelis who are... Yeah. Very rude, let's say. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about that. <laughs> yeah, it's not the easiest customer to have. No, you're right. Customer service, but it's manageable. Yeah. Mohammed, can you tell me a little bit about your uh, relation to the Afro-Palestinian community? What is your own descent? Like, do you know anything about your great-grandfathers? And in general, after that, about who are the Afro-Palestinians? Well, the Afro-Palestinians in Jerusalem descend from four different countries in Africa, from Chad, Sudan, Senegal, and Nigeria. So I am the third generation of Afro-Palestinians in Jerusalem. My grandfather is the one who came here alongside other people from Africa in two uh, goals. One is to do pilgrimage in Al-Aqsa Mosque. And after that, when uh, the Israeli The Israelis came into Jerusalem in 1948. They decided to stay there in order to defend Jerusalem and the Luxor Mosque from the Israelis. And they have remained here since that time, ever since that time. So we've been here for, I think, around 76, 77 years as Afro-Palestinians here in Jerusalem. And personally, I am from Chad. Yeah, both your parents are from there? Only my grandfather. My father was born here. Yeah. My mother was born in the States, actually, but she's also originally Palestinian from Ramallah. So you, your grandfather came from Chad and he married somebody from Chad? No, he married a Palestinian woman from Jericho. Ah. He married her when he was in his 60s, I believe. Oh. Yes, and brought five children, including my father. Yeah. And I, I don't know my grandfather because he passed away before I was born. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. 
So that's that's interesting. How is your like? Do you have anything with Chad? Have you ever been there? Do you have any idea that in the future you would like to go and visit there? Do you have any connection to that country of your grandfather or not at all? I mean, we do, I don't really have, I could say, connections there. But my father tells me that, uh, or nor my father has connections there. But my father used to always tell me that we have around. 70, 80 cousins back in Chad that he, that he doesn't know about. Like he has brothers and sisters my father doesn't even know about because as you know, my, my grandfather has married my grandmother at 60, but he married seven times. My grandmother was the seventh. Oh, <laughs> so he has many children and many, let's say grandchildren that my father doesn't know about. So there, I'm sure there is family there, yeah. but we just don't know how to reach them or how to get in touch with them. Yeah. Do you know of any other Palestinians in the Afro-Palestinian community that do have connection to people back in Africa? Not too much. Maybe just a few, one or two, because uh, we're not allowed to move as freely. Like it's, it's, it's not that easy to go to Africa nowadays because we have, we have to go through Egypt and through other places and with the entire history of the African community society, we're not on best terms with so-called Israel. They, they do restrict our movement a little yeah. You said that a large part of the community came here as pilgrims and then they stayed here to defend Al-Aqsa and they got married here. Were there other times in history where people came from the, from Africa or is that the... They, they used to come before, but they used to go and come between Africa and Palestine. It was only since the Israeli occupation decided to take over Palestine, they decided to stay and defend Palestine with the Palestinians. Yeah. But they used to come by the times of Mansa Musa. I don't know if you ever heard about him. He used to be the wealthiest uh, African king who used to go around and travel the world and just distribute gold. So uh, people from Africa used to go and come with this king and he would roam around the entire globe, let's say. And they would go and come and they discover lands with him and so far so not. So yeah. it's been from back in those times. Yeah. So it, I know there and we'll talk about the uh, uh, neighborhood where you grew up and where you were born. But around Palestine, like greater Palestine, are there other places where you have an Afro-Palestinian community? Yes, we have uh, Afro-Palestinian community in the refugee camps in Lebanon. We have in Amman as well and a little bit in Saudi Arabia. And you mentioned Jericho. I remember going to Jericho and uh, seeing quite a lot of very, very dark-skinned people there. Is that the same story? Yes, almost. Do you have any family members that are in Jericho or in uh, other parts? Yes, we do. Like all my uh, father's uh, relatives, let's say, from his mother's side are from Jericho. Because as I told you, my uh, grandmother married the woman from Jericho. Yeah. So most of his uh, cousins and whatnot are in Jericho, living in Jericho. Yeah. Yeah. And here in Jerusalem, there is a quarter. We always hear about Jerusalem that there are four quarters. But actually, there are a couple of other quarters that are not very often mentioned. Uh, there is also a quarter of the uh, Domari uh, gypsies. And there are a few others that uh, you can actually hear in a very nice podcast episode by the Jerusalem Unplugged podcast. And one of them is where you born and grew up. Can you say something about the history of that area? 
where you grew up, the African Quarter, because I read that this is a formerly an Ottoman building that was used also as a prison before the British mandate. Yes, so before the Ottoman Empire fell in World War One, let's say, my quarter was a prison for the Ottoman Empire. So we had, the prison was divided into two sections, a section which was named Ala al-Din al-Busiri, and section which was named uh, Habsiddam and Ala al-Din al-Busiri. Anyways, the, the one that I live in is named Ala al-Din al-Busiri. And this part was uh, mainly for holding people with high sentences, like let's say 15 years, 20 years, and what's all not. The other side of the community was for uh, executions. So they go uh, for people who need to be hanged, people who need to be executed will be on the other side. Anybody in holding would be in my section. Anybody who will want to be executed will be in the other. Just cross the street and you, they'll be executed. I remember going there once with a, a tour guide and he showed us, you go towards Al-Aqsa Mosque and then you, you have a street. It's not a very wide street. And then you have a big gate on the right side and a big gate on the left side. And when you enter into that gate, it's like a small compound you have a sort of a courtyard and there there are all these yeah it looks like small houses but now i was almost about to say small cells but actually that word it fits very well with the reality of what it was and then even after the ottoman empire after the africans settled in jerusalem the let's say uh, the well i'm going to be a little bit racist here but the, the white population of jerusalem started calling it habs al-abid which means uh, the cell of niggers. Cell of niggers? Yes. Abid, can you explain that word? Abid basically means niggers in Arabic. Well, not, not niggers, niggers, but it's what it, they try to mean. Because Abed, it means slave, yes, right? Exactly. Yeah. So they called it this, the prison of the slaves. Basically, because we, it was a prison and we are African who are living in it. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's also interesting, maybe to shift to how do you feel that as the Afro-Palestinian community, you are being perceived by the Palestinians in Jerusalem and by the Israelis that are now in Jerusalem? Two different perspectives, actually. So the Israelis view us as any other Arab. You know, the Israelis view themselves as, as they are more important than the rest of the population on this planet. Let's say, and the Arabs are, let's say, a little bit racist, not too much, but you still feel that racism nowadays as well. I mean, they may not show it to you, but you still kind of feel that li little hinge of racism. Yeah. But there is intermarriage between... There is, yes. Yeah. Because the, the, now it's the 21st century. I mean, people have a little bit open minds, uh, thank God. Yeah. So, yes, you know... Black people from the community are marrying white women. Black women from the community are marrying white guys. So there's, in a few more years, there will not be any more, let's say, black people in, in the community. Do you still have a couple of pe people who mainly married within the community who are really very, very dark-skinned? Yes. We have one uh, man, his name is uh, Adam Balalawi, who is from, also, he's from Chad or Sudan, I believe. I think Sudan. And uh, he married uh, a Palestinian woman from Bethlehem, but she is also very dark-skinned with African uh, uh, origins. So their kids are extremely dark. Mm. Uh, so yeah, they, but yes, yeah, <laughs> he's the only guy who's 
protecting the color <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in the community. Yeah. If you speak about community, then it sounds like community, it means that you have things in common that are different from the rest of the society. So I'm very curious to know if there are typical things in your community that make you, except for the skin color, let's say, mm. that say, yeah, we have certain traditions or heritage or food or something that really distinguishes us from other Palestinians, or is it only by name that you are a community? Uh, no, we do have a few things uh, to distinguish us from the rest of the other communities. We have a dish named Azid Aside, which is... Uh, I'm not sure that how to explain the ingredients for you, but uh, we gather around all together. It's very spicy, and it's uh, they, they used to call it poor people food. Uh, I'm not sure who called it. I think my father. And uh, yeah, we gather around on the entire community, big big men, small young folks, uh, sit around the table and eat aside. This was like a tradition for the Africans, you know, because they when they used to go on their long journeys, they used to have to cook. So they'd cook this aside, sit around, eat it, and then continue on their journey. So we still used to do that back in the uh, few times we have did, we've done it in my lifetime. But uh, is it like any dish that you can describe that is comparable to Arab dishes, or is it so different? It is with the smid. It's I don't know what smid is, but yeah. you put smid, and it becomes like very fluffy, and it's very filling actually. And then you put some meat with uh, tomato sauce and very extremely spicy uh, substances around it. And you, you take a little bit of the meat and uh, the tomato sauce, you, you dump it in this meat and you eat. It's like a porridge. Or it's, it's, a, or, it's a very heavy porridge. Yeah, it's thinner than couscous. The, the meat is... Yes, but you, you make this meat extremely heavy, so it becomes like um, baton. What is it? Ah, like, baton, like, like concrete. Cement, like cement. <laughs> yeah. It becomes basically like cement. And still until today, <laughs> some people will cook this dish. Well, most people don't know how to cook it nowadays, but uh, my uncle still uh, knows how to cook it. But now uh, everybody is busy nowadays. Everybody has work to do. Everybody has uh, has their family to take care of. Uh, and it's not as uh, in, in uh, connect contact with, uh, with other people as it used to be back in the day. You know? Yeah. Is there still... In the, maybe in the older community, people who speak another language except for the Arabic? I'm sure there used to be maybe in the first generation, but now, uh, no, no. Everybody speaks Arabic. Yeah. And a few speak English, and other few speak other languages. Yeah. Very few. Do you know how many people are we talking about in Jerusalem, in this uh, Afro-Palestine community? 350. That's how many families? How many families? A good question. I think around 50 families. Yeah. Around that number, 50, 50. Do you know all of them? Would you like, you see someone in the street and you're like immediately know that this is from my neighborhood? Yeah. We have a very big, big number of uh, personnel uh, under this community. Yeah. But yes. Like, uh, and we're all together in connection, you know, like, uh, let's say my name is, my family name is Goz and other family name is Bulala, but we say we are cousins because, you know, we are from the same, so our grandfathers came from the same place. So, uh, and me, I'm, I only have a sister. So, but I have 48 cousins. Ah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Lots of weddings. <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> 
Do people stay in the, the old city in these two places that you described, the old prison, or are they also starting to move away from the old city? Uh, no, but now, yes, they're starting to move away. But a few other people also moved away, but also lived in the old city. So you have a, a little bit of the community in Bab al-Hadid, a little bit in other parts of the old city as well. But mostly, yes, because uh, the old city is a big challenge. It's not easy living in the old city as a Palestinian, black, Arab, and Muslim, you know, altogether. Yeah. So uh, many people want to go somewhere with their lives. So they decide to live somewhere a bit more peaceful, a bit more uh, easygoing than the yeah. old city. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? How, as a kid growing up in Jerusalem, yeah, what type of experiences do you have when you say that it's hard? When I was young, I used to remember, like, uh, I mean, this was when I was extremely young, that uh, there would be clashes, clashes with the police in the old city. And then the Israeli army would raid every single house in the old city. So that would, of course, make everybody afraid, you know, all the, the youngsters, even me especially. But growing up with that, you know, every day hearing problems, every day hearing clashes, you know, not doing anything, you know, just like this, coming into people's houses, just terrorizing them. It is uh, developed me into a person, let's say, who kind of doesn't really care about any army in the world if at this point of view, uh, time. Because I've seen so much um, the monstrosities, you say, from the Israeli army that now I'm just like, let's say, heartless and for situations like these, when there's bombs and screaming and shouting, I'm just like, meh, whatever. It became a... It became a routine. Yeah, you normalized it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not completely normalized it. I mean, now they cannot come into the community and do whatever they want. We, me and my cousins will stand up to them. There's also a line that they should not cross with us. Yeah. You know, because it's been going on for so so many years of our lives. It's like, okay, till when? Yeah. For any listeners who are not really that much aware of what happens in the old city, can you describe when you're walking around and you have like a police officer asking you about your ID and how does that work? Well, when I come home from work, there's at least four to five checkpoints I have to pass by. At what time of the day is that? That is at 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning. So we'd have a uh, few police officers, you know. So when you're coming down from Damascus Gate, you have a bunch of them sitting on top of Damascus Gate. You go down a little bit, you, have, you find another two. Go down a little bit, you find four. You go down a little bit, you find six. But those are the final six that you have to pass by. And every six months, we have new soldiers. So every six months, they want to stop you, uh, give me your ID, where are you from? And they speak to you as if uh, in, in a tone that is like, uh, I don't know who, who the hell are you, and I am bigger than you, I am the law, I am this. You do as I say, and only as I say. And this does not work here. I'm sorry, but like, if, if, if you have any soldiers listening on your podcast, this does not work here. Because every time something like this happens, we tell them. Like, you, you want to come with us in a high tone, we will also come to you in a high tone. Because we've been living here for 22 years. You are not from here. So, yeah. Yeah. Does it mean that in uh, your community, I mean, in general, I know in the Palestinian community, there is a lot of young guys, especially guys who have experience of being harassed and also being arrested and brought into the police station. Do you feel that in your community that happens too? 
course. Oh, my community, I think, is the most community that we have arrests and crashes and, and this because our community, the African community, is the only community that doesn't have Israeli settlers in it. It's the only, uh, let's say, um, neighborhood that has no Israeli settlers. And that's why the military, let's say, wants us to leave it because we are the closest to Al-Aqsa Mosque. Like the, do the door of Al-Aqsa is right there. So if Israeli settlers get one house, then that means it's endgame. Wow. Did you ever notice any kind of attempts by settlers? Oh, yes, of course. One time I was coming home at like, I think, 3.30 in the morning. I had a banquet somewhere and I went into my neighborhood and I found settlers looking at houses at three o'clock in the morning. And I was like, what are you doing here? They started talking and yabbing. I'm like, if you don't leave here right now, I will, I will shout and I will bring you 48 people to, to beat you up. So they are looking if they find any houses that were maybe they empty? They were looking at one house, yes. They want to take, get their hand inside the, this neighborhood, but they don't know how, because all of the houses have been signed off to the waqf, to the Islamic waqf, so it's, it's impossible to get their hands on it. Wow, and the houses where you live, are they also owned by the waqf? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Like, because back in the day, there was a lot, lot of um, selling from Palestinian part to Israelis, like in Hat uh, al-Sa'di, let's say, or other parts of the old city. So uh, all the elderly of the old city got together and decided to sign off, off all of the property to the Islamic Waqf in order to prevent any more uh, property selling to Israeli settlers from there. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. So does it mean, just to go back to the housing situation, these houses, I mean, if they were a former prison, that means that they are probably small and you have quite generally big families. So how does that work? Oh, very interesting. It doesn't stop them from having big families. <laughs> I mean, space is definitely not a concern for people in our community. I mean, they deal with it some one way or another. Well, it means that um, it's most... very packed, the houses. Yeah. The, the, the houses, housing is very packed. So you have, let's say, my, co my cousins, they sleep like, they, they sleep, one guy has, takes the right side of the room, one guy takes the left side of the room, one guy takes the middles. And... So is it like they have mattresses piled up along the, f along the wall during the day and then yeah. in the night they just put mattresses and sleep uh, all of them together? Or do they yes. have actual beds and like space for themselves? Well, nowadays they do have space for themselves because we were able to arrange a few, uh, a small area for them, like a small house for them to actually live in, all the brothers and stuff. But back in the day, no, it was mattresses. It'd go mattresses, wake up time is the same, sleeping time is the same for everyone. Yeah, yeah, then you have to coordinate. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But for example, if you would uh, want to get married at some point, would you bring your wife to live in that community if she was not from there? Or would that be problematic for her? Because, it's yeah. not problematic for her, it's problematic for the man, actually, for us. Because there's no space now. Now the community is very overloaded with people. We cannot put another person in the community. There's no space to live. So if somebody, let's say, from my generation wants to get married, we cannot live in the old city. We'll still have the house in the old city, although, but we cannot live in the old city. Because there's just no space to live.
Yeah, and then you'd have to rent somewhere else, and that is very expensive. It is. So that's why you have to work every night. <laughs> every night, yes, basically. <laughs> In order to try and survive. Li life is extremely expensive yeah. for, let's say, the average working person. Extremely challenging and difficult. Yeah. It's more expensive here than to, to live in Europe. It is, it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you more about the specific challenges that you have living in the old city and maybe being from that community. You said that uh, you, have, you are being stopped on the way by the, <coughs> these checkpoints. You have settlers trying to take over your houses. Is there other things that you want to mention or examples to give people an idea of these challenges? So, yeah, when I get stopped by the police... When I tell them, the first question is, which means, where are you from? I tell them from Babel Majlis. Now, Babel Majlis, for them, it's like you ticked something in their head, you know, like, go search them, go intimidate them, go do this, do that, make sure that they don't leave uh, happy. Yeah. Because th this is the only word that every single time when we have new um, uh, officers or new uh, army personnel, I hear them. Uh, I hear them talking around with, let's say, the um, commander, and the commander tells them, "Like this is the community that uh, you have to make sure to mess up as much as you can." Like just while walking by. So yeah, we are a target. Yeah. In for, in their eyes, but I'm happy that I am a target. Yeah. Yeah. You're smiling with it. <laughs> I mean, uh, it kind of gives my life. It's a sort of. Uh, uh, a spice lit to it, you know, it's, 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 a it's a challenge and I like challenges and I like, you know, putting my head in the head of a, of a stupid soldier. You know, tell them what do you want? Yes. Is there a kind of pride in it? You're, it you. Absolutely. As a person who is completely high not completely harmless, but uh, no, uh, no weapon, no nothing who lives here. Who's getting stopped by, let's say 20 soldiers with AR 15s and, gas and all this and still not caring i mean yeah it's interesting so it's kind of a confirmation that you belong here it, the more you feel that they are trying to get rid of you the more you know how much you are rooted here the harder it is for them to, to get you out of it yeah that's very interesting uh, the the afro-palestinian community is kind of famous for being part of the palestinian resistance right I mean, not everybody from the community, but, but mostly, yes, many people from the community have been done s some sort of activity with the Palestinian resistance. For example, Ali Jeddah, who uh, has been in prison for 17 years and later ex released with a prisoner exchange program. And we also have Fatma al-Birnawi, we have uh, my father who was in jail for five years, you have my uncle who's been in and out of prison. And I think, yes, most, I think... 98% of the community has been in prison at least once. When you say that they are in prison, does that mean that they are charged with certain things or is that mainly administrative detention where they never find out why they were arrested? Yes. The, I mean, we have this and that. I mean, I have a cousin right now who's serving eight years and still they don't have a charge on him. Eight years. And he has nothing to do with the incident that happened. He's actually coming out in this summer. He finishes this summer. His sentences. How old is he? My age. He was arrested when he was a late was teenager. Yes. Wow. In which prison is he? Right now, I think he is in... Uh, I'm not sure. 
They move them around a lot, yeah? They do move them around a lot, yes, but he's in, I think... So you haven't seen him all that time? You cannot visit him or something? No, no. Uh, Visits are only restricted to family only. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever been arrested? Me? No. But at one time I was was almost taken. Because also something that I haven't done, obviously. Yeah. But yes, when, when let's say something happens in the old city... The, um, the police and army become like raging bulls. Yeah. They just uh, become, you come, you come, you come. You don't want to come, we'll drag you. Yeah. yeah. Is that a constant fear that you have that maybe one night I will not come home and I will stay in the police station? And, no, uh, no, not at all. You don't think about that all no, the no, time? No, not at all. Even if I go to prison, let's say for 20 years, I wouldn't care. I would take my time, go inside, read some books, <laughs> develop my mindset a little bit. Use my time correctly. I mean, it is what it is, right? I, I mean, I'm Palestinian. I live, I live, this is how we live. So better make use of your time. Yeah, that's interesting. Because that, on the one hand, you say that I, you don't think about it all the time. And in, on the other hand, you are already so much prepared. Yes. I mean, for it. I hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And um, how is the level of uh, education in your community? I mean, all children go to school here, but do does everybody have the opportunity to continue studying? No, not not everybody. Like, think about I was lucky, let's say, to be able to study and continue my studies as well as abroad. But most people, yes, don't go past uh, Taujihi. Even there's, in some cases, people, uh, I have a cousin who hasn't finished sixth grade. Oh. Who just decided to just go and work. So that, is because, that a financial uh, struggle that yes. people have? Yes, yes. I mean, people in the community are very poor because the, the standard of living here is very expensive. And um, when they have uh, a lot of kids and a lot of that, they start racking up debts and what so not. And they become, uh, they start thinking of new ways how to make money. So that's why sometimes the kids go off from, so they leave school, they start going off to work in order to help their parents with paying off their debt. Wow. And that's what happens with, uh, happened with a lot of uh, people who I know. So they'd, if they'd had the opportunity, they'd all wanted to continue studying, but they can't because they have to Probably. help provide yes. for the family. Yes. Yeah. I find that very hard <laughs> to... Yeah. But so you find them, they, they are as well happy now. They're doing all right. We are all doing okay. Yeah. Although that the world really doesn't care about anything that happens here. Yeah. But it slowly, well, that's slowly, changing. But that is changing. Yeah. You know, with the, with the Did last, you see uh, the Amnesty International report <clears throat> recently? They finally, finally mentioned that Israel is an apartheid state. I mean, slowly but surely, I'm sure we're going to get there because it's actually written in the Quran that we will be free from these suckers. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse my <Yeah>. French. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, studying the history yeah. of this land and reading how yeah. many different oh, rulers yes. there have been. Oh, yes. This, this land has been very eventful throughout the years. Yeah. But that, this land has never seen peace. Let's just put it that way. I mean, it, maybe it has, but for a few, maybe a very few period of time. Yeah. But in general, yes, everybody wants a piece of this land. I think that the big difference between um, previous rulers... And uh, the current Israel is that Israel is really a colonial imperialist state. 
And for example, if you look back Ottomans and the Mamluks and before that the Ayyubids, and they came as rulers, but they sort of integrated into yes. the land. There was intermarriages. They wanted taxes, they wanted the money, and they wanted you to kind of obey the rulers, but they were not trying to displace, the forcibly displace the people that were living here and replace them. They dealt with the population that was there, and this is a new situation where they are trying to really replace. Oh, no, no, these, these people are trying to replace everything. History, people, the entire infrastructure, everything. They want it all to themselves. Yeah. And that's basically what's happening. Yeah. I mean, you're 22. You're, you still have a long life ahead of you. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. What is the, what's your dream? Like, if you had a sort of uh, power where you can just, like, change things with the snap of your finger, how, what would Jerusalem look like? Wow. How would Jerusalem That's a very interesting question. I really don't know how to answer that question because I've never seen it like other than having problems. But I would wish that it would be peaceful at least for one week. You know, just to like walk in the street. My dream, actually, I'll tell you what my dream is. My dream is simple. My dream is waking up, getting out of bed, going to my street and not seeing police. I think that that would be like the happiest day of my life. Not because when I go out, I have police and army to my right and police and army to my left. So there's really nowhere to, to run. So yes, my dream is waking up one day and not seeing the police. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. That's amazing. I have, I, once I said to myself, I wish I can wake up one morning and drive to Gaza, go and eat fish, swim on the beach, meet yeah. some people there. And drive back. It's just one hour from Jerusalem. And mm. it's very normal things that would now seem impossible, but that if they were possible, they would make life so much yes, nicer. I, mean, I would love to go, let's say, have lunch in Amman and go have dinner in, in Cairo. I, mean, I have a car, but I cannot go. No. It's too complicated with the so-called Israel around <laughs> if you hear sometimes stories how they used to take the train, <coughs> yes, yes, Aifa, Akka, and go to Beirut yes, and yes. see some theater and uh, eat something there. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Sleep one night, come back. I I love the stories of uh, let's say the elderly generation because because specifically of those types of things of transportation back in the day. I used to go from one country to another completely easy. Inshallah, one day these yeah. days will be back. Yeah. I hope to see them before I die. But Yeah, <laughs> well, that's good. You're still young. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's what, uh, what Ali said. He said that uh, I, he has a lot of faith in this new generation, he said. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, he said that this generation so is going to make a change. Yeah, yeah, because plainly this generation really does not see the Israelis. That's not, not, not see, but... The, doesn't really care about how much firepower, how scary they are, or what is the consequences of what are they going to do to them. They just want to show them that we as well can challenge you. Yeah. You know, so we find like little kids uh, going to Damascus Gate, cussing out the, the, the army, then running away. <laughs> yeah. Or now in Ramadan, I don't know what will happen this Ramadan, but previous Ramadan, it was very eventful. I'm sure you recall there, there was 
a lot of clashes here and there in Damascus Gate and in Al-Aqsa Mosque, and then Gaza intruded and became a big mess. But it, it was a good one because we won the, let's say, um, news game yeah. over the, in the world. We saw a lot of world solidarity with the Palestinian cause. So it was excellent, actually, in my point of view, although some of uh, it cost a little bit of lives. But it gave a good, let's say, push point for the end result, I guess. Yeah. So don't know what will happen this Ramadan, but inshallah it will be something better. Yeah, inshallah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you uh, very much for your time to talk a bit about the Afro-Palestine community. I will post in the show notes of this podcast a couple of links where people can read a little bit more and the video that I found on YouTube where you can see a little bit of uh, photos and uh, material about the community and where you live so that people have also a visual idea about that. And um, my last question, if people came to visit Jerusalem in the future, because now the airport is open again, people start again to plan trips. And if they were so interested to meet people in your community or to know where you live, is there any initiative? Are there any organizations or people they can contact who are tour guides that can provide them with a visit or some in-depth information? Well, in that terms, no, but they can contact us, the community, uh, if they are truly interested. We do have a website, afropalestinians.org. And yes, all our information is there about our history, about how to contact us, our email addresses, even our Instagram page, although we don't post that much on it these days. Maybe you can revive that after this talk. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah. post that link in the show notes. People can go there. Do you, do, are there any organizations, especially in your community, that support the community? Like we support ourselves with ourselves. Like the the organization that we have is kind of uh, from our own pocket. So we're trying to revive the old city and help out people in the old city with uh, our hopes and dreams, I guess. But there is something like for for example for the children or the the people in the community where they can meet and they have some sort of activities. Yes, yes, yes. yes. We have uh, two separate uh, buildings. Well, not building like rooms. Let's say. One uh, section is, uh, say, the, the place where they, they used to be executions. That's the offices. And then the other place where you get uh, sentenced is uh, the hall, which is capable of holding, holding 350 personnel. Oh, wow. That's where you do your weddings and your uh, activities? Uh, or Weddings, not, uh, not anymore. Oh, no. I mean, weddings now, because uh, we have many more people that we start, began to know. And, uh, you know, it's a very diverse community now. So we do weddings outside the old city in, in general. And in, in, in the old city, doesn't like, weddings don't really work. No. No, 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 no not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere to park your car to come yeah, anywhere close. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Now, thank you again. No, I really you. appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Stories from Palestine. If you enjoy the podcast, then here are several things you can do to support the show. Tell your friends about the podcast. Share some of the social media posts on Instagram or Facebook. Start following the YouTube channel. You can also hear the podcast audio there. And soon I will start uploading videos. 
Sign up for the email list so that you get a reminder with a clickable link to the new podcast episode. And in the future, you will be updated about programs and trips that I will start to organize. And of course, you can donate to help me pay for hosting the podcast and the website and all the related recording costs. It's the only source of income I have at the moment, so you can imagine how much I appreciate every cup of coffee or falafel sandwich that you buy me on the coffee platform. All the links that you need can be found in the show notes and on the website storiesfrompalestine.info. That's it. I hope you will tune in again next week. <laughs>